0: Welcome to the Poetry Corner podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. When did people first start doing what I'm doing? When did they first start sitting down and saying, okay, what I'm going to do is talk about and analyze poetry? Well, the simple answer is, we don't know. I assume that as soon as the first poems were written and people enjoyed them, they perhaps sat down and thought about, well, what is this thing that I just enjoyed? When we teach undergraduate literature classes or writing classes or philosophy classes, we often talk about critical thinking and the development in an undergraduate student, which we see as essential, of the critical thinking faculty. Literary criticism is this general term which refers to applying our critical faculties to literature. We're not sure, like I said before, who the first person was to do literary criticism, to apply critical thinking to literature. But we do know that it started somewhere, and if we look at extant writing from the classical period, that is the ancient world before Christ, we find that there are major... Literary critical writings that influence not just the practice of literary criticism ever afterward, but kind of invent what literary criticism will be and invent how we look at poetry, what we look for in poetry forever afterward. I want to look today at Aristotle's Poetics. Now, Aristotle's Poetics is arguably the first work of literary criticism in the Western world. Now, Those of you who have read Plato will say, wait, 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 Dr. Bartel, Plato himself wrote before Aristotle and certainly is concerned in his dialogues Ion, in his dialogue Phaedrus, in his dialogue The Republic, for crying out loud, with literary critical issues. In The Republic, in Ion, there's lots of analysis of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, and there's even quite a funny moment in Plato's Ion where... This guy who prides himself, Ion, in being a Homer expert is shown by Socrates to know very little about what he's talking about at all. And he even admits at the end of the dialogue, well, gosh, I sure don't know much about Homer, do I? It's pretty fantastic. But Plato is certainly doing literary criticism. He's inventing literary critical questions. What is poetry? What is it for? How is it structured? What is the effect of poetry upon the poet and the listener and the reader of poetry? Now, in in the classical world, we had listeners to poetry more than we had readers of poetry. For as much as poems were written down and preserved, and we have thousands of pages of poetry from the ancient world preserved, even more than that, people listened to poetry. We had poetry recited in the city squares. We had poetry contests at major religious festivals— Plato is asking questions about what effect and place those poetic endeavors have upon the culture that, that fosters them, that, that produces them, that enjoys them, that consumes them. But for all that, he doesn't—and this is partly a genre issue— Plato doesn't sit down and say, I will write my theory of poetry. Instead, he gives us these little philosophical plays called dialogues where he has people talk about things, including poetry. He has people analyze social, philosophical, cultural situations, including poetry. But the first writing where someone sits down and says, I will now write a treatise on poetry. The first time we have that done at least that we still possess, that is still extant, is Aristotle's poetics. And so I want to give a little 10-minute meditation on my favorite part of Aristotle's poetics. It's a part of Aristotle's poetics where Aristotle, at least as powerfully as Plato, and I might argue a little more powerfully than Plato, or at least more positively than Plato, gives an apologia for why poetry should be important and is important to humans. At the very beginning of Aristotle's treatise on poetry, we usually call this treatise The Poetics or De Poetica in Latin. At the very beginning, he in fact says straight off that he is going to write about poetry. It's one of the things I love about Aristotle. It's very clear from the beginning of any treatise of Aristotle, any chapter of any treatise, what he's going to talk about, where he's been, where he's going. So the opening... Line of Aristotle's Poetics is, I propose to treat of poetry in itself and of its various kinds, noting the essential quality of each, to inquire into the structure of the plot as requisite to a good poem, into the number and nature of the parts of which a poem is composed, and similarly into whatever else falls within the same inquiry. Following, then, the order of nature, let us begin with the principles which come first. I love it. I love it. It's so clear. In fact, some say there's a little mystery involved in Aristotle, because he just says what he means and means what he says. But if there is a mysterious or at least more deeply humanly resonant part of Aristotle's Poetics, it comes in chapter four. Now, Aristotle's Poetics, I should say, is not a long treatise. Altogether, it's maybe 20, 30 pages. Nothing at all like Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, which is a good 200 pages. So in section four, Aristotle says this. Poetry in general seems to have sprung from two causes, each of them lying deep in our nature. I gotta pause. Many translators don't see the poetry in this line, and S.H. Butcher, in fact a very, very old translator from the early 20th century, S.H. Butcher captures this better than other translators. Uh, I'm going to show you another translation. Translation is interesting because, of course, I could read you this in the ancient Greek, but I'm not very well versed in ancient Greek, and I assume not all of my listeners are. So I, I want to read you the beginning of chapter four of Poetics in another translation to show you why I like Butcher's translation so much. Here's a translation, another translation, I won't name the translator to uh, protect protect the innocent. Poetry, I believe, has two overall causes, both of them natural. Ah, yeah, that's okay, other translator, not butcher. But butcher's translation, it just, I think, gets at why Aristotle cares about it. Poetry in general seems to have sprung from two causes, each of them lying deep in our nature. Saying each of them natural, doesn't quite get at that very humanness of poetry. Poetry comes from our humanness. Maybe not even from the everyday uh, colloquial or quotidian matters of our humanness, but things lying deep in our nature. So what are these things lying deep in our nature that poetry springs from? First, the instinct of imitation is implanted in man from childhood. One difference between him, that is man, and other animals being that he is the most imitative of living creatures, and through imitation he learns his earliest lessons, and no less universal is the pleasure felt in things imitated. We have evidence of this in the facts of experience, objects which in themselves we view with pain we delight to contemplate when reproduced with minute fidelity." such as the forms of the most ignoble animals and of dead bodies. The cause of this, again, is that to learn gives the liveliest pleasure, not only to philosophers, but to men in general, whose capacity, however, of learning is more limited. Let no one ever say that Aristotle is not elitist. Philosophers, okay, their capacity of enjoyment is, is very high and noble. The common rabble, uh, they, they still can learn from imitation, but, you know, not quite as much as the philosophers. Thus, the reason why men enjoy seeing a likeness is that in contemplating it, they find themselves learning or inferring and saying perhaps, Ah, that is he! For if you happen to not have seen the original, the pleasure will be due not to the imitation as such, but to the execution, the coloring, or some such other cause. Okay, so that's kind of a a long, pretty detailed description, but that's Aristotle for you. If he tells you a mystery, something deep in your nature is the cause of poetry, he's actually going to spell it out for you. What is this? Well, as humans, he says, we're naturally imitative. We love imitating. Not just Making imitations ourselves, we love seeing imitations. I love this moment. He says, The reason why men enjoy seeing a likeness is that in contemplating it, they find themselves learning or inferring and saying, Perhaps, ah, that is he. I'm not sure if this is exactly what he's referring to, but. It reminds me of when uh, you're sitting around with a group of friends and someone starts doing an impression of someone or something, and you say, oh, you're doing an impression of George Washington, or oh, you're doing an impression of Napoleon. I, I don't know. I'm picking random people from history. Usually it, in fact, is making fun of celebrities or contemporary politicians. Imitation is something deep in our nature. This is very wise in Aristotle. I made fun of him for being an elitist, but Aristotle like most ancients, has views that we see as obviously silly, this idea that philosophers are somehow this higher level of humanity than the rest of us. But then they say things that that seem to explain why we think what we've always thought in a way that's more fundamental to what it means to be human. We love imitating because we're human. We're human because we love imitating. We imitate more than than any other animal, and our imitations are complex. Our imitations are both enjoyable and didactic. We teach through imitation. One of the things that I like to focus on as a creative writing teacher and also as a critical writing teacher is that, you know, I can tell you how to write a sentence. We can talk about noun, verb, and object constructions we can talk about dependent and independent clauses. And that's important. It's it's important to be able to identify those elements in our writing. But what's, I think, more essential is to show and give students well-written sentences by good writers and have them imitate them. The more we imitate good writing, the more we write inspired by other writers, not just inspired in, in a vague emotional way, but writing sentences that imitate in their construction, the constructions of the great writers, doing those kind of practices are ways that we learn how to write well. You have to read good books to write about them well. You have to read good sentences to write good sentences. Aristotle gets this. Okay, but that's just imitation. After all, there are many types of imitation that aren't poetry. Uh, Art, uh, critical essays on Poetry, like he's writing. What is it in our nature that gets the formal, maybe even the beautiful poetic aspects? Does it just come from imitation? No, Aristotle says. Imitation, then, is one instinct of our nature. Next, there is the instinct for harmony and rhythm, meters being manifestly sections of rhythm. Persons, therefore, starting with this natural gift, developed by degrees their special aptitudes till their rude improvisations gave birth to poetry. Once again, Butcher gives that last sentence better than anyone else. The rude improvisations give birth to poetry. It is a particularly interesting view of history that there's this pre-poetic era where imitation and the instinct for rhythm and harmony hadn't yet quite clicked together, and there were rude improvisations, and all of a sudden someone said, Aha! Eureka! I have made it! I have made the poem! But uh, that's, that's an interesting history lesson. I, I don't know if... if there's any way to check and see if that's what happened. But we do see, and Aristotle in the Poetics goes goes way out of his way to talk about these different theories of who wrote the first tragedy or who wrote the first lyric poem or who wrote the first epic. So he does, in fact, try and give historical precedent for this idea. But the philosophical and anthropological aspect of this is what I'm more interested in. Imitation is one instinct in our nature. Next, there's the instinct for harmony and rhythm meters being manifestly sections of rhythm that takes a, a minute to unpack we like rhythmic things we like rhythm we don't like a rhythm a rhythmic patterns are not patterns at all we like sound patterns even little babies will moan rhythmically i have a i have a 5 week old right now and she she will say ah eh, uh, eh. Uh, My two-year-old likes banging on a drum. He likes banging rhythmically. Bang, 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 bang. It's in us from childhood. When Aristotle says it's in us from childhood, he doesn't mean it's childish and it should go away in our adult maturity. No, it's in us from childhood, meaning it's fundamental to us. It's part of our nature. Aristotle believes in human nature. There are things humans just naturally do. We imitate. We like harmony and rhythm. We like politics, he says. In The Politics of Aristotle, he says we're political animals. Here he says we're imitative and rhythmic animals. What does it mean that meters are sections of rhythm? Well, we've talked about meter a lot before, and I don't want to perhaps go into things that we've already beat to death or, or beat into life, perhaps. But when we think about meters, we think about little sections of rhythm, don't we? An iambic meter is da 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 da. We could break that down into little sections of two syllables: first unstressed, second stressed. When I have fears that I may cease to be, first line of a Keats sonnet. We can break that down into when I unstressed stressed have fears unstressed stressed that I unstressed stressed may cease unstressed stressed to be unstressed stress. The fact that that sounds good, Aristotle would say, is because we have an instinct for that rhythm. And we also have an instinct for harmony. We like contrasting rhythms coming together into higher unities. Now, I'm no expert in music, but my musical friends tell me that when we play a chord on the piano or the guitar, the contrast in notes creates frequencies and resonances that those notes on their own when played don't create. And that when I pluck an A string on a guitar, a guitar across from its A string might vibrate because there's a harmonic resonance that takes place between them. Now, poetry, I think thankfully, is a little more simple than music. We don't have different keys of poetry, though often poetry is sung to particular melodies. And in fact, Plato in The Republic goes into this a lot, uh, talking about proper and improper melodies and keys and rhythms in which to sing. But what Poetry does is it's inventive about sections of rhythm? What different rhythms can I create? Not just da 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 da, but da da-da, da da da-da-da-da, da da da, or da 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 da, or like the rhythm of a sapphic line, is da 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 da, and in fact a whole sapphic stanza is da 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 it's not just that da 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 over and over and over every fourth line you knock your line down to only 5 syllables of da 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 Now, why? Why do we do that? I think that sometimes when you introduce poetry in an introduction to literature class, sometimes students feel weary. Like, why do we have to follow these rules? Because it's natural to you, Aristotle says, because you are a human being and you like making rhythms. And if you don't now, you slowly will as you become more human. Aristotle invents here, or perhaps discovers, articulates a discovery, articulates an observation that imitation and rhythm will naturally always give birth to poetry in man. I'm no historian or anthropologist, but I think that, at least from the layman's perspective, the fact that we get poetry all over the world, that from China to Ethiopia to Gaul to Mexico, there is poetry. Not just in very advanced civilizations, but in what we would consider more primitive civilizations. In fact, poetry and song seems to be even more part of primitive societies. The banging on a drum rhythmically and the chanting of perhaps an autumn rite to the harvest gods. That's something that every culture has something like. We like saying things in rhythm. And we like accompanying it with music that emphasizes... Rhythm, But we also like imitation. We we don't want to, as he says, if we walk down the street and see a dead body on the street, it will shock us. We will be disturbed deeply. But what we can't see in reality, we enjoy seeing imitated. I don't want to actually see an orc's head cut off, but I can watch in Lord of the Rings Aragorn cut an orc's head off, and instead of being utterly revolted and disturbed, I can say, yay, go, orc slayer. Now, I don't know if Aristotle thinks it's very good in us that we like things in imitation that we don't like in reality. And in fact, that's one of the big problems in Plato. If humans become addicted to only imitation and not the real thing, Socrates in Republic says that seems bad for citizens. We live in a world of shadows. But Aristotle is saying, look, it's natural to us to learn from imitation. And I think we know that in in teaching. We have to imitate. Both we imitate for others to learn from us, and we encourage others to imitate in order to learn. And when we do those imitations in rhythm, when we join that desire for, that instinct for imitation and rhythm together, that's when we begin living poetically and making poetically. These ideas, imitation and rhythm, and the idea that is natural to humans to do it, is at the foundation of so much thought after Aristotle, Aristotle's writing in the mid-300s BC, and ever after him, we have this constant discussion of how poetry imitates and how poetry should be related to form, especially rhythmic form. Aristotle is not the last word on poetry, but he's one of the first words on poetry. And as we continue... In this podcast series, thinking about form, thinking about what it means to be human and relate to poetry and be enriched by poetry, to be disturbed by poetry, to be inspired by poetry, to be troubled by poetry, to be motivated by poetry. We need to keep Aristotle as a companion who's coming alongside us and telling us, here's maybe why you like this. Here's maybe why this is good for you. Here's maybe how to be more thoughtful about poetry, not just see it as a disposable entertainment, but something closer to who you are fundamentally. This has been the Poetry Corner podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. If you have any feedback for us, questions, comments, snide remarks, you can email us at poetrycorner at stconstantine.org. Thank you.